Please turn again to our scripture reading passage um, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. You know, when we look at what God values, that, that, those things that are important to him, surely we know that the world, it's fallen, it's under a curse. God loves his creation, loves it all. That's what we refer to as common grace. God's favor, that, that is which extended to his creation in, in all forms, in the forms of rain, in the forms of sunshine, even the biological cycle itself, these are all forms of love that God has for his creation. It, it displays order, it, it functions as he intended it to function, and it brings glory to him. This universe belongs to him. Hebrews chapter 1 says of Jesus Christ, God, after he spoke long ago to the prophets, or to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. And Christ is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholding all, through, all things through the word of his power. Christ upholds all things through the word of his power. He sustains everything. Colossians 1.16 says, All things have been created through him and for him. For he is before all things, and in him all things, again, they hold together. And in comparing the immense value of a human soul to that even of a simple animal or bird, Jesus said, Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not even one of those will fall to the ground without God knowing it. And, and in Matthew, uh, we're told about the lilies who are clothed in the field. Christ is the creator. He's the sustainer of the universe. He provides for all. He upholds all. He cares for everything. In James, we see every good thing, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Amen. This is what we see as common grace. Common grace. Everyone enjoys it commonly. Then there is God's redeeming grace. Redemptive grace is God's grace and favor in the form of salvation of souls. We know man after God created uh, man that we rebelled, we sinned. We know the wages of sin is death and that death entered into the world through sin. Everybody sins, so everybody dies, except in the case of a rapture. It's Enoch. Different text, different story. We won't go there today. But through all men, there has been rebellion. We are certain to die and face the judgment of God. And God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die and pay for our sins. And to all who receive him, to all who believe in his name, God gives the right to become children of God. God has saved us. That's redemptive grace. And to all believers, God provides His Holy Spirit to us as a sign and as a seal unto the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit regenerates our hearts. He deposits us. That means He baptizes us into the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12.13 says this, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. The Corpus Christi, the body of Christ, It's not just a nice town in southern Texas. The body of Christ. 
And in doing so, as we discussed last week, we as Christ's body, we are his physical manifestation in the world today. You and I are his representation. Scripture says we are his ambassadors. You know, if I were God, maybe I would have probably thought of a different way. Is there a better way to do this than through a whole bunch of sinners? But in his wisdom, in his grace, in his power, he uses us as his ambassadors. His ways are much higher than ours. But just as Christ walked the earth, we now walk the earth. Just as God loved his son, God loves us. Christ's body is to him the most precious thing on the planet. The most precious thing is his body. It's what he loves enough to give up his son. That make us feel good. It should. And we should rejoice in that. And so God brings his body together to worship people every, of every tribe, every tongue, confessing Jesus Christ as Lord. And, and we are as sheep placed into the sheepfold, in, into the herd. We're all here, worshiping together. And you know, the sheep, that's an animal that really struggles to stay alive. I don't know if you've been around sheep. My dad raised a bunch of them when, he, when I was real young. I hobbied with a few of them out in Texas. Boy, they really struggle. And, and, and they're really difficult animals to teach. I mean, when, when you see these events where they're training different animals and dogs and specialized, it's never sheep. <laughs> never sheep. They can't learn anything. Sheep struggle to follow. They'd rather wander off and, and, and go off a cliff somewhere if they aren't watched closely. They don't do well in following. They hear a bark or a growl, they scatter everywhere. No defense mechanism whatsoever, sheep scatter. They're very vulnerable. They're susceptible to predators. Wolves have a field day with them. They can't defend themselves. So our chief shepherd, that is Christ who is the head of the church. Our chief shepherd who is now physically absent because he is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Our chief shepherd has provided under-shepherds who are physically present, who are able to train, who are able to multiply, who are able to edify, who are able to defend the flock. Under shepherds. And please look with me again at 1 Peter 5 when we, when we look at the role of a shepherd. Peter said, Therefore, I exhort the elders among you. Elder here, it's a Greek term, presbyteros where we get the word Presbyterian, all right? Make sense? Elders are presbyters. Uh, he says, Peter says, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder, the Apostle Peter says. It's now very late in, in, in the Apostle Peter's ministry and, and late in the apostolic era. A number have been martyred already. The apostolic age is actually now drawing to a close, as this is written. And the, the oversight and shepherding role is now, by apostolic decree, being transferred to a new generation of overseers. It's going to be a new generation. And we observe Peter himself in his passage, even now just categorizing himself as a fellow elder. As a fellow elder. Opens the letter, Peter the Apostle. But now he's saying, fellow elder. 
And uh, if you recall from a couple months back, we discussed a little bit from Acts chapter 15, as we discovered how oversight of that church in Jerusalem early on, it, it, that oversight was mutually shared between apostles and elders. That is, even these decisions that were important, very important, salvific even. That means that the doctrines that they were discussing, uh, there was salvation hanging in the balance with some of these decisions. And we remember that Judaizers were arriving in, in the city of Antioch, that is, that's north of Jerusalem. And, and they were teaching, they were coming in and teaching that you had to obey certain tenets of the Mosaic Law in order to be saved. You can't be a true Christian until you've been circumcised. They were trying to add back in the Mosaic Law. And Paul the Apostle, who was in Antioch, he knew better than this. He knew that was inaccurate. And, and a debate raged... So in Acts 15.2, it says that after there was great dissension and debate, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and some of the others of them should go up to Jerusalem. That's an elevation. They actually went down south to Jerusalem, but it went up in elevation. They went down to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Shared responsibility, apostles and elders. Please notice it was reviewed jointly. It says in verse 4, when they arrived at Jerusalem, this is Paul and Barnabas and his group, they were received uh, by the church and the apostles and the elders. And they reported everything to them. Verse 6 says at that location, the apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. And we know what the result was. Peter made the announcement. God made no distinction between Jew and Gentile, cleansing their hearts by faith also, remember, Re referencing the Mosaic Law, even as being a heavy yoke, Peter says that we will not place this burden upon the neck of the disciples. It's not going to happen. A yoke which neither us nor our forefathers could bear. We believe, Peter said, that Jews are saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ in the same way that the Gentiles are also. Amen? Praise Jesus. And then, and then James got up and spoke. He made a declaration. And we, repeat, uh, we read that the apostles, the elders, they, they sent back this team of representatives back to Antioch with a letter. And in Acts 15.23, we see this letter of official declaration opening like this. From the apostles and the brethren who are elders to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia who are from the Gentiles, they say greetings. In Acts uh, 16.4, just a few pages later, now while they were passing through the cities, this is again referring to Paul and his team, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and elders. So they were, they were sharing these decrees that had been handed down. So decision-making oversight of the local church, it was a shared uh, situation and, and after the scriptures uh, were la years later completed, once the canon was, was at least nearing completion, we had the canon of scripture and it was available now as an inerrant guide for the church. Once that came into the picture and this apostolic age now is drawing to a close, in First Peter chapter 5, Peter essentially says, consider me a fellow elder. 
Consider me a fellow elder. This is right in line with what the Apostle John said. If you will look at his last two letters, 2 John and 3 John, he simply introduces himself as the elder. The elder's responsibilities we find in 1 Peter chapter 5. And in beginning in verse 2, the elder's responsibility, Peter says, is to shepherd the flock of God among you. The elder's role is to shepherd. Shepherd's the word for pastor. It's translated pastor. A pastor is a shepherd. And, and elders are the ones who do the pastoring. They do so how, verse 2 continues, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily. Get this, according to the will of God. Not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, it tells us. This reflects exactly what we studied last week in 1 Timothy chapter 3 that was written by the Apostle Paul. The elder aspires to the office of overseer with eagerness, perhaps needing a little encouragement, but he desires it, but not by peer pressure, not by compulsion, not you have to do this. Because elders are motivated, they're driven by a calling from God. Not driven by money, not by sword of gain, it says. And, and elders, they shepherd the flock of God by, it says, exercising oversight. Oversight here is, is a Greek term again, episcopeo. What does that sound like? Yeah, episcopal is episcopalian. Another biblical word, that's where they get their name. The Latin form of this same word is... Bishop. Bishop. So an elder who oversees in Latin is a bishop. The term overseer implies continuing and careful scrutiny. And so bishop, presbyter, and elder are simply different terms to describe the name of the person who does the shepherding. That's all it is. The role it shepherds. So, so we can see from First Peter that, that these are not a hierarchy of offices. You don't have a bishop up in Atlanta and a presbyter in Jacksonville and the local elder down at the local church or pastor. They're all the same office. Uh, an office that pastors the flock, shepherds the flock. And, and Episcopalians, they call their overseers bishops much of the time. Presbyterians call their overseers presbyters. And we call our overseers Elders, all the same, all the same. But all are pastors. All are shepherds of the flock. You could refer to Gerald and myself as bishop. But don't, that'd be really weird. <laughs> Our function is to oversee. First Timothy 5.17 says this, The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Preaching and teaching. The Greek word for rule here simply means to preside over, to make governing decisions. 1 Peter 5 verse 2 tells, uh, tells Gerald and I to do the, exerc uh, the exercise, the oversight we saw according to the will of God. According to the will of God. That means simply in harmony with Scripture. That's what the will of God is. It's found in Scripture. This is why we learned last week that elders, those with the responsibility to shepherd, Titus uh, um, chapter 1 says they must have the ability to teach sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. Have to know their Bibles. 
Because if they're going to uh, govern, oversee according to the will of God, you have to know what the will of God is, right? Simple. Local churches are, are provided oversight as it's revealed in the scriptures. You know, when we talk about deacons, the role of deacon, which will be next week, uh, we find instead of overseeing, they are recognized as godly, willing, able-bodied servants. Very important people. Uh, to be recognized by the congregation, they must have very similar character traits as an elder we found out. But they're never found in Scripture as exercising a governing role or oversight. They're not found in Scripture doing that. This is why they're not required to have the ability to teach. But elders govern in verse 3. This is in 1 Peter 5 again. If you look with me. Not by lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples of the flock. This term here, allotted, it's quite fascinating. Sheep that are allotted to a, to a pastor's charge are ones who fall under his jurisdiction. Uh, this is the same word that is found uh, among the, the, the Roman soldiers that cast lots for Christ's garment. They cast lots. It was allotted to them by chance, so it appeared. And, and as pastored, pastors, those who are under your oversight are those who are here that, that happen upon you. They come in, they happen upon, they join the local church. This is a view here of the local church. It's where we see local congregations developing. They happen upon the location, one form or another. And it isn't that we determine that we're here by luck, or by chance, or randomness, or anything like that. We know that God is in charge, and He leads us towards things. God's directing every step. But we acknowledge as pastors, uh, Pastor Weiler and myself, that, that the church... The, the growth of the church, the size of the church, many dynamics of the church, they're outside of our control by God's allotment. It's those allotted to your charge. It's the ones who fall in the location. Each flo- local flock is by God's allotment. So pastors then, they don't oversee by compulsion. The sheep are not overseen by compulsion. Everybody is here because they want to be here. It's not by compulsion. And, and as such... We see a pastor, they can't lord it over someone, right? It's unlike a business owner who has the paycheck. says, you want this paycheck? You're going to have to work for it. You're going to have to show up, or you're going to get it. They can lord it over people, right, Nathan? Not exactly the wording you would choose, is it? No, that's not what he does. So you can't do that. Elders can't just say, you know what? You're going to show up on Saturday, and you need to be out here mowing, or you need to be out here painting, or you need to be out on Wednesday night. Pastors can't do that. Pastors don't do that. The pastor relies everything in the church, everything that happens, to be accomplished by, empowered by prayer. Prayer and the power of the Spirit as it moves people to be involved and according to God's Word, done within the parameters of the Bible. We realize we can't go out. We can't make it go. Joe, I know we can't make it go. We don't have an oar in the water. God's got the oars in the water. And, and uh, we're completely helpless on our own. We have to be fully dependent upon God, His control, upon prayer. And, and the fact, really, that anyone shows up at all is a miracle. That's right. The fact that any of us love God, it's an absolute miracle. He's brought us together in a miracle. Praise Jesus. And so we know that. We don't rely on eloquence. You say, well, I know that. We don't att- uh, attempt to attract people by glamour. 
It's all by faith. And when, and when the chief shepherd appears, it says there, for those who are able to walk this faith, to work, to persevere, it says, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So, so the ministry of a congregational oversight completely dependent upon God through His Spirit. And, and, and it's empowered by prayer. It's applied according to the will of God. And, and shepherding oversight or pastoring, it's entirely a ministry of prayer in the Word of God. Entirely. Listen with me to Acts 6. Acts chapter 6. You don't need to turn there. This is a time very, very early in the church. The apostles were providing the oversight of a quickly growing congregation in Jerusalem. Very early on here. The the elders weren't even selected yet that were going to join them. And and the apostles were the only overseers. They were the only pastors that that were on the scene here in Jerusalem. And in verse, chapter, in verse 1 of chapter 6 it says, Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews. Because their widows were being overlooked for the daily serving of food. So the twelve, it says, mean the apostles, the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and, and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God, in order to serve tables. The food distribution. Therefore, it continues, Brethren, select among yourselves seven men of good reputation, full of spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. The overseers are going to put them in charge of the task. And then they continue, But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So there were demands on the church. It was stretching the apostles. Uh, on this occasion, it happens to be the distribution of food relief to widows. And, and the apostles who were shepherding said, it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Not that serving tables is bad. It's not. Actually, it's very good. In fact, the term deacon, which means servant, deacon literally means a waiter at a table. A servant. A servant at a table. For real. And, and we'll learn next week in First Timothy chapter 3, which, which says that a deacon, a server of tables, who has served well, obtains for himself a high standing in the faith. Christ modeled that as a foot washer. So, so in no way is, is this a disrespect to a waiter of tables or a servant or a deacon. A deacon is a recognized servant, a very dignified position. But for the overseers, the apostles that were on the scene, to have been distracted from their ministry of the word and of prayer in order to serve tables, that would have been a neglect of their ministry. That's what the apostles are saying here. That would have been negligent. So the remedy then was to appoint uh, recognized servants who the apostles said will put in charge of the task. The pastors delegated the task. Uh, And then, it says, the elders laid hands on them and prayed. Delegated the task to them. They are still under oversight. They never went from out from undersight. They're not a separate branch of oversight. We, We get that from America. Separate branches of government that work against each other. No, that's not how the church works. They're not separate branches. You have the, the elders, the overseers, who would put in, uh, Deacons, servants, they're equipped for a certain task in charge of things. And they oversee them. 
And, and they respect their ministry. And they told everyone, you're going to respect their ministry because it's a very high standing for someone to step up and serve. In the meantime, the apostle said in verse 4 back there, we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. That's what they're going to devote themselves to. These are two examples of the early, early church having leadership roles in their infancy, overseers and deacons. And clarity on both is provided later as Scripture develops, as it progresses, as the apostles finish writing it. And uh, uh, these are clarified later on where we're looking at right now. And elders provide the governing oversight that is directed by prayer and decision-making oversight that is administered according to the will of God. And the deacons serve. And we see initiated now by the apostles, this represents a group, a beginnings of a, of a, a council. A council of men, it says. Uh, those who are united to provide oversight and to shepherd the flock of God, the local church. And this governing body of a local church is generally referred to as a board of elders. Or a council of elders, some churches say. A board of overseers. How many elders must there be to constitute a board? What we call a board. Let's look. The Bible always refers to elders of any, of any local church in the form of a plural. All right? So there should be a minimum of two. If it's in the plural, there should be a minimum of two. Notice elders is in plural. Uh, in, um, in Acts 20, verse 17, uh, Acts write, the writer of Acts, Luke, says, From Miletus, Paul the Apostle sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. Elders, plural. First Peter uh, that we're studying right now, it's plural. Peter said, I exhort the elders among you, shepherd the flock. James says, are any of you sick? Is any of you sick? Have him call for the, again, elders, plural. So there are multiple elders at these locations. How are they identified? How do you know who they are? First, you know, we studied last week. We know from Scripture that there are certain character qualities, character requirements. They have to be, also have the ability to teach. But Scripture also demonstrates that each generation of overseers assesses and identifies the replacements. Assesses and identifies their replacements. To Titus. Titus now is acting as a second generation of overseer on the island of Crete. The apostles were the first generation. Titus is acting second generation. And he was to appoint the third generation. Paul wrote in Titus 1 verse 5, For this reason I left you in Crete, Titus, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. That was his role. And then we, we know Timothy, who we've been studying, he was acting as a second generation overseer in Ephesus, right? We've studied that in the past, and Paul is writing him. And he tells second, uh, Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 2, the things that you heard from me... Entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. First to second to third generation. In Acts 14, we see the identical thing. 
Paul and Barnabas, they're, they're establishing churches throughout Galatia and different locations. And it says in verse 21 of Acts 14, after Paul and Barnabas had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Is that a fact? Yeah. And it continues, when Paul and Barnabas had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed and fasted, they commended them to the Lord. So there again we see appointing of plural elders in every church. What we discover in Scripture is that that current overseers, they identify, they appoint the next generation of overseers. This is very similar to what we do here. Very similar. Um, Essentially, leadership appoints nominees. Nominees. Uh, uh, Who we feel meet the necessary biblical requirements. And to assure that they have a reputation of being above reproach, then we present the nominees in front of membership to ask for a vote of affirmation. Do you agree? And, and our current board members are essentially appointed. And then the membership provides their stamp of approval by affirming. And the nominees are above reproach. I think we do it right now. The way we do it is it's 50% plus one to approve them. The, the church that we used to go to in uh, Denton, Texas... They would stand up the, the prospective elders on uh, multiple occasions. And um, if there was no, if no one came, they didn't even have a vote. If it went on for several weeks and, and no one even came forward, they're, like, they're affirmed. No one has brought any charge against them. So whatever way it is, they're presented before people to be affirmed. The entire process from uh, Selection to identification to, to appointment or nomination, we call it, and affirmation. It's all guided by prayer. It's superintended by the Holy Spirit. It means the Holy Spirit controls the whole process. He superintends it. And in Acts 21, Paul said to those elders in Ephesus, Be on guard for yourself and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you the overseers. The Holy Spirit did it. To shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with, with his own blood. So, so the reason the current elders, they do the appointing, we call it nominating, a little more palatable in our culture. We call it nominating is because whether or not the candidates meet the biblical criteria, as it is laid out in Scripture, demands an understanding of the Word. You have to be able to, to discern and be assured that those who are determining the nominees understand what the Bible requires of nominees. And then, are they above accusation? The board goes, as far as we know, as far as we know, they're, they're above it, but let's put them in front of the people and let's see what they think. And then there's an affirmation membership provides. The same is true of the deacons uh, who will be assigned to serve in a variety of tasks. They must be identified by the current overseers as being within the biblical criteria. And then they're appointed, nominated, whatever you call it, and then they're presented before the membership for an affirmation. Talk about their role next week. How then are elders identified? And this we have to get to is the real brass tacks. Beyond the uh, character requirements, we already discussed those, Pastor Weiler and myself are aware that some 
some extent, every prospective elder, to some level, aspires and desires. We know that. And, and Gerald and I have been praying for elders to aspire for some time now, many months. We've been praying for, for prospective elders to desire and, and they aspire primarily because they love what Jesus loves, his church. And many of us have concern for his church. We should all have if we're regenerate. And, but potential elders, they display a quality of really wanting to protect it. They're very concerned. They want to aspire like shepherds for sheep. They care for the sheep. They want to see the sheep nourished by the word. They want to um, see the sheep protected. They want them to grow. They want to fight off threats of disease, of predators. And and these are all achieved through prayer and the ministry of the word. That's how you accomplish a, a healthy flock. Prayer and the ministry of the word. God guides it by prayer. The ministry of the word administrates it. We're all being refined. Gerald and I this week, we're, we're just rejoicing after last Sunday. And, um... Kind of the slogan for the week was, the word is at work. We see the word at work every day. It's amazing. Your lives are being changed. You might not even realize it because it's subtle, but the word is at work. That is the change agent. That is what uh, changes us from the inside out. And we, we, look, uh, we look at people who are aspiring And over a long period of the time, we begin to sense those who are devoted to prayer and ministry of the Word. Over over a season, essentially all potential elders, they naturally engage Pastor Weiler or I, or myself, excuse me, in theological discussion. They love the Word. The ministry of the Word, it comes natural to them. They, They engage in it. The Bible is their launching pad for many discussions about the church, many conversations about the church. They're eager to share what they are reading in the Bible. They share it well. Uh, they, they share what they've learned. Over a period of time, we, we begin to discern which authors they read, which pastors they're listening to on the radio, uh, what view of, they have of theology, what their view is of the Bible, what they gravitate to theologically. And, and eventually, just by listening to them, we can begin to sense they're, they're strumming that same theological chord. Thrum. Is it strumming? Is that what you do on a guitar? You strum it. And, and they're in tune. Like, man, they, they, they speak just like us. So, you know, they're in the same harmony with us. They, they, they admire the same authors. They admire the same pastors, the preachers, the seminaries that we hear that are teaching the truth of God. And we discover we're in harmony. We can see they consistently communicate truths of the Bible without straying off into false doctrines. Because a, the, a, a board of elders, a church board of any kind, they have to have theological harmony. They have to be in tune with one another. Um, and since all elders have that ability to teach, they must be able to teach, they're all going to eventually end up teaching somewhere. At some point, whether it's in a home group or whatever, they're all going to end up teaching in some capacity. So we can't have one elder teaching in a home group at one place, one thing about the Word of God, and having another elder in the other place saying, that guy's crazy. He isn't teaching, right? Let me tell you what I think about it. That would be disastrous. So, so uh, the unity of a congregation is to great extent a direct reflection of the unity of the leadership. The unity of the leadership. And uh, elders build up one another. They complement one another's abilities. They complement one another's weaknesses. Elders find the resource to all church decisions in the ministry of the Word. 
methods of evangelism, preaching, counseling, budget discussions, church discipline and correction. All actions are rooted in the Word. Not rooted in politics or what people think. Um, Boards that lead well lead together. So we look for those things. And and, and then the apostles said, you know, we're going to devote ourselves to prayer. The apostles here did not suggest that everyone doesn't devote themselves to prayer. We all pray. What they mean is shepherding elders are especially devoted to and reliant upon prayer for the administration of the ministry. Everything in overseeing the church. Elders seek and desire opportunities to pray together, to consistently pray together. They pray about the budget. They pray about soul winning. They pray about growth, church programs, what we do for souls to be saved, and, and, and for servants to rise up in the church. We pray together. Leaders that pray together stay together. Each Tuesday morning, Gerald and I meet together. We pray together for peace, for harmony, for wisdom, for one another, for courage, for boldness, for humility. And we have a gentleman that's been, just been joining us recently. 7 o'clock every Tuesday morning just to pray. Believes in prayer. He's a potential candidate for elder. Potential. Um, he views prayer for his church as his priority. It's, it has good theology. Easy to get along with. These are qualities we look for. Qualities we look for. Finally, the primary responsibilities then of a pastor and an elder are prayer, teaching, and preaching. 1 Timothy 5.17 The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Elders who rule well are considered double worthy of their calling, the ones who invest themselves foremost, first, in teaching and preaching. That's where the change comes. A local church flourishes when leaders together focus on prayer and preaching and teaching the Word of God. We're seeing that here. We are seeing that here. And because it's by prayer, it's by clear teaching, um, it's those things by which the body becomes equipped for service to accomplish the things of ministry That's how we thrive. You know, there are complete entire denominations in this country representing millions of people that have fallen away from Christianity completely because the shepherds abandoned their devotion to prayer and the ministry of the Word. That is a fact. They abandoned the ministry of the Word to do other things. And I know myself, I grew up in one of these denominations that faltered. I wasn't a believer at the time, but I saw what happened. And I saw that it became, you know, Christians in general over the last century grew slack. And eventually it came in these churches, I saw this, a single pastor's official duty to meet every need. It was the single pastor, the guy who rode the, the cleric who wore the robe and was the official minister, it was his official duty to visit every person who was sick, fix every person who was ailing, answer every complaint, meet every concern in the flock. When they had spare time, they were supposed to fix a roof. And when pastors are expected to do everything, it always comes at the expense of the teaching of the word. Always. And of prayer. Detrimental. 
You cannot divest yourself of that. So, so a pastor meeting every need, everywhere, at every occasion, every crisis, every time, you know, it, that does give an appearance of godliness. Oh, the guy's everywhere. That's great. No, it's not. Somehow, somewhere, the ministry of the Word is lacking. The ministry of prayer is lacking. And the pastor's not actually doing what he's supposed to do. That cost is too high. Scripture, as we close, provides us a better model. A better model. Instead of the elders being everywhere all the time, we are to be an example of equipping the saints for the works of ministry, the body of Christ, so that it can be everywhere all the time. Amen? And we teach, we model ministries so others can see and learn how to do ministry. And, and, and as our final point, you look at First Peter chapter 5 again, and you probably wonder, was he going to skip over that? It says, Shepherd the flock of God among you, elders, exercising oversight of those allotted to your charge. How? By proving to be examples to the flock. Every elder pastor, pastoring elder, knows he should not and cannot expect the flock of God to do what the pastor would be unwilling to do. I would never ask someone to do hospital visits if I myself was not willing to do hospital visits. Um, I'd never expect you to hand out a gospel track if I'm not willing to model that and even train you to hand out a gospel track if you so desire. Can't expect you to do what I wouldn't do. Um, if, if we expect you to give to the church sacrificially, we know we need to give sacrificially. It's a ministry of prayer. God knows what we do. God knows what we do. And... If I expect you to make a meal to take someone who's sick when they're, when they're in trouble at home, then I have to expect myself to make Rita to take a meal to someone who is sick because I can't cook. The same is with vacation Bible school, Awana, holding street signs, cleaning the church. Gerald needs to be there too. He is. And we equip the saints for the works of service for the building up a body of Christ. And a couple examples here recently, you might not know that even go on, uh, of equipping others to do what we can't be all the time. Uh, the Quintanas, they do uh, virtually all of our new uh, visitor connections. They try to call them, they reach out to them, they'll go visit them. They, they labor in that, nobody even knows they're doing it. Do a great job. They contact everyone who they can. You, you turn in a connection card, you're probably going to get a call. They're wonderful people. They love people. They love new people. They say, that's a ministry we want to be involved with. We've got Bud and Margaret Copeland over here who um, just love to pray with people, be with people who are in need. And, and they said, we want to start doing some home visitation. They said, for those who are just shut in, not that we're at everybody's place every day of the week, but we want to be available for those who can't get here. So we started ministry two, three months ago, prayed through it for several weeks, and now they're available. If you know anyone who's shut in, they, they've started visiting people who can't get out all the time. They're doing the works of ministry and reaching out beyond us. And we all desire uh, to do the works of ministry in order for this work to expand. In order for it to grow, that reach is going to have to be further than a handful of elders. It's got to be the whole body of Christ reaching out to the community. Because Christ is building his church. And we started, we talked about how that is the most precious thing to God in the universe. In the universe, he's adding to it every day. It's our privilege to be at work at, work at that. Will you pray with me?
Dear Father, You are magnificent. Lord, we love You. Lord, You've brought us here to to worship You, Lord. Covering our sins, making making us new, Lord, new creations that worship You in spirit and in truth. Lord, we... We love You. We want to serve You, Lord. Help us to do that well. Lord, help us to to preach Christ, to go out and be courageous, Lord, to love one another, Lord, to minister in spirit and in truth. Lord, we love Your truth. Your Word is truth. Thank You, Lord, for today. Bless these people as they go, Lord. Be with them. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.